Kia ora and hello everyone, I'm Phil Quinn and this is the first episode of Behind the Cycle, a podcast about New Zealand politics from a Labour perspective. Now rather than lay out in any detail uh, what this podcast involves at this early stage, I'm going to take the best advice I ever got as a writer and the best advice anyone I think ever got as a writer, which is show don't tell. So please enjoy today's episode and you'll get a sense of the kind of podcast that we are and that we aspire to be. And to that end, I'd like to introduce, I'm very excited about this, I'd like to introduce the first co-host who will be a regular uh, co-host with me on on the podcast, uh, who is none other than uh, the Chief Economist, I think that's right. Uh, uh, just, just, just the Economist, well you're a Chief to me, Chief Economist yeah. Craig Rennie from the CTU who many of you, most of you, I suspect, will remember for his star turn during what was otherwise a pretty desolate uh, campaign in many respects for Labour, uh, when Craig um, really, I think, quite forensically uh, tore apart the National Party's signature uh, tax cuts policy in their broader fiscal uh, programme. Um, Craig's voice will be critical for the Labour movement, the party, as well as the union movement uh, in the coming battles with the new coalition government. So it's great to have him here. Thank you, Craig, for agreeing to be on this. And it's and I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, excellent. Now, um, in a minute, in a moment, Craig and I will will be interviewing as our first ever guest on the podcast. Aisha Varel, Dr. Aisha Varel, Labour's uh, health spokesperson. Um, that's the meat and potatoes of today's episode, as all episodes will centre around uh, a newsmaker interview. But before that, I'd really like to get, Craig, your sense, given what we know now, uh, in terms of what came out of the coalition agreement and the... Um, mini budget where does your critique of nationals tax and fiscal plan uh, stand today well i mean the honest answer is that we don't know um you know the current um, approach from from national has more holes in it than a than a colander um you know that was clearly as part of the coalition agreement the foreign buyers tax has gone that's left a three billion dollar hole inside the tax plan and um, they still haven't outlined how they're going to deliver um the tax the the cuts to public services um except to say that's going to be department's responsibilities to now deliver so there's no certainty about what's going to be cut or what's going to be changed there's the very odd situation in which the landlord taxation which was giving two billion dollars to landlords um now appears to be $3 billion, and it's been backdated um, to the 1st of April 2023, which is an, an extremely unusual 
um, situation. So the honest answer is, is we don't know. There's very little clarity. The, the uh, Nicola Willis, uh, the Minister of Finance, promised to give us more clarity um, early this year. We, we look forward to seeing that. But it's 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 complicated um, matters in the extreme in terms of the budget, in terms of political negotiations, and a, and a, and a range of other things. So um, the the I think our critique still stands. It's uh, we we called it murky. Um, when it first came out, and it's still pretty murky. What are what are the scale of uh, cuts, uh, or I guess borrowing? Is that on the cards um, that that they would need to uh, contemplate in order to deliver this tax cut? Which I suspect Luxon has determined he will go ahead with, come hell or high water. Um, well, certainly the. The cuts that they've outlined are around eight and a half percent to what they call affected departments. So um, that they've said they're going to exclude frontline health and education and a range of other areas, but they haven't quite explained what frontline is. So we need to see what the detail of, of that is. But eight and a half percent. So there's around um, uh, two billion dollars of, of additional cuts um, uh, expected. Uh, um, from government departments. That comes on top of the cuts that the previous government, the 2% cuts that they had um, already outlined. And there's then a further um, $1.6 billion of cuts across four years um, to contractors and consultants, um, uh, which they've identified to pay for their ECE, their early childhood program. So all told, there's around $8 billion of cuts to government services, um, but um, quite how they're going to land and what they're going to do, we don't know. Um, and we don't know how effectively they can be delivered. And certainly the experience of trying to deliver cuts to expenditure in government in the past has been it's a very tricky game to actually get really solid amounts of money out of government departments. So we may well be revisiting this cuts program again and again and again to try and squeeze more juice out of the public service in future years. So in practical terms, you know, taking away percentages and numbers, which can be mm. baffling to, to, to lay people like myself, what, what is an 8%, what, are, what is an $8 billion reduction in public spending look like to the average New Zealander? Well, one of the things that it'll do, you know, is uh, uh, you will start to see degraded public services. So may, the public service will be very good at maintaining frontline street street level bureaucracy. So the public service is already an extremely, well, we have one of the most efficient public services anywhere in the world. That's not me. That's actually um, many international organizations say that about the New Zealand public service. It's transparent, it's honest, and it makes decisions effectively um but you'll see degraded services it will it will there will be uh, there will be longer um between um you know services being repaired replaced people it'll get harder and harder to see someone and if you need assistance from the public service and so that'll be the real when the rubber hits the road is actually it'll become it'll become more difficult to work with the public service um because the efficiency savings are actually just someone doing their job when someone tells you they're going to cut waste what they mean is they're going to cut something that they don't like rather than something that's actually not necessary 
Yeah. And so when the national party says it's going to cut the, the back office, often the back office is, is the engine room for the people doing the work on the front line. If, if, you're, if you don't have someone filling in a form for a doctor, the doctor's filling in the form. Yeah. And those things will eat away at the effectiveness of the public service. And so people will see less effective public services, which fundamentally um, affects all those who use public services, which is everyone. Yeah, I think the word degradation describes it, doesn't it? Sort of slow, but pretty inexorable path of degradation. And and, and sort of the, 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 the worrying part about this is that if this was being used to deliver uh, additional uh, investment in, in public services that have been neglected, not just for a few years, but for decades, um, then you could make a reasonable case to say, well, we're going to invest this in, in education or in health or in policing or in something else. But this is money going into the pockets of landlords this, who quite clearly haven't suffered over the past few years. Um, this is money going into the pockets of those who, uh, who are already doing quite well in terms of um, the, where, where, the, where the incidence of tax cuts fall. Um, it's not going into the pockets of minimum wage workers who would get around $2.50 a week as a consequence of these changes. So they're not really justifiable from a, 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 a sort of a, an efficiency perspective, i.e. we're going to use this money to make the public service more efficient. And they're not really justifiable from a, from a, a distributional or an equitable position because they're not going to those who need the money the most. It's simply a tax program designed um, to, to, to reward those voters um, uh, uh, who may have voted for national in the past. Uh, what, what's uh, the likely inflationary impact of the tax cuts as well. It's very difficult to say because, again, we don't have great clarity about when the tax cuts are actually going to come in um, and, and how they're going to work. One of the things that we, we can see is that already the housing market has picked back up as people expect uh, the tax cuts to uh, uh, give uh, landlords the ability to, to leverage again and to buy more properties and to, and, and to sort of turn housing back into an investment class. And that's going to put a turbo boosters back under the, uh, uh, the sort of house prices. Yeah. Um, we expect in terms of general inflation, if you're putting money into the pockets um, uh, uh, of people in, in terms of uh, those with higher income earners, either it will go back out as more expenditure, which will be inflationary in and of itself, um, or it will get turned into uh, um, those people reducing their debt faster. Um, so all we'll see is a greater expansion of wealth inequality as a consequence of that uh, that, that that tax change. So the inflationary pressures are very uh, are very unclear right now, but that's just because the actual tax plan is very unclear. It's been very clear. It's you know um, there have been plenty of commentators from you know that notorious left wing organisation Goldman Sachs um, saying that um, you know the that uh, it, it would be inflationary right through to um, you know, um, others saying that what we don't read that now, we need right now is a big fiscal impulse, to use the technical phrase as we do in economics, um, because that's just going to push back up demand on goods and services at a time that we're trying to reduce it through interest rates. Right. And, and um, other noted socialists like Davos, the World Economic mm. Forum at Davos, um, regularly this is a, a separate but related point around regulation. They, 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 they have an ease of doing business ranking 
yep. that they put out every year. And I, 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 I correct me if I'm wrong, but we've certainly been at or near New Zealand has been at or near uh, the top of that ranking. So yes, you've got Goldman Sachs and and uh, and uh, Dar- and the World Economic Forum touting New Zealand as, as sort of a model modern economy, which is worrying in its own kind of way. Mm. Um, and yet you've got Seymour and, and Luxon and others running around saying we're, we're a red tape, you know, uh, riven economy where no one can get ahead and we've got a terribly unjust tax system which uh, suppresses innovation and um, wealth creation and so on. Uh, there, there's a dissonance there. There's a, you know, there's a, Myth versus reality scenario that I think is going to play out in the next uh, little while. Don't you agree? Oh, I certainly. You know, so, so the World Bank, um, which produces the Ease of Doing Business oh, Index, it's, Bank, is that right? um, it's, a, um, it's it, it, the last iteration of that. Placed New Zealand first yeah. in the world, yeah. um, and it's always either New Zealand or Singapore yeah. is the best. And we're only ever second because it's very difficult to get an electrical connection to your factory. Um, and if it wasn't for that, would be light years ahead. Is that, so, is the, that the metric but, that does us every yeah, time? Damn that, it! That's the metric that sort of that changes us, that moves us down one peg. But in terms of the actual ability to, to, to you know, you can create a business in fifteen minutes online. Yeah, you can destroy your business in fifteen minutes online. You yeah. can, you can, you know, we have a, a relatively uncorrupt and transparent public service and a relatively uncorrupt and transparent economy it's very it's very easy to do and you should see our labor regulations um in terms of you know the ability to hire and fire and do other things so the idea that new zealand is a is a is a, is a hidebound rules-based economy where everyone's just sort of you know like like a polish shipyard demarcating <laughs> their particular jobs is a is, is a complete myth and a complete fallacy um now the idea that we um you know we should be focusing our efforts on that um, is not a great place to begin with, even if it were true. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that New Zealand does very well is be an open economy. People can come here, people can invest here, people can do things relatively straightforwardly here in, in New Zealand. And so we're already the best country in the world to be um, a business. Um, Jacinda Ardern famously said that she wanted New Zealand to be the best country in the world to be a child. Um, and that's a great, um, you know, economic goal um, and a great, you know, overall political goal. But we're never going to get there unless we're the best country in the world to be a worker or to be in work. Yeah. And to me, that's, that should be at the core of our economic philosophy. Instead, we're making it harder to be in work and we're making it more difficult to secure, secure employment mm. and economic security in terms of in- secure incomes, secure hours of work. We've just made it easier to hire and fire people with ninety bringing back ninety day trials, which the treasury says make no difference. Yeah. In fact, the only the only difference they say it makes is to make it uh, it is to give uh, insecurity to workers for the first ninety days. Yeah. Um, we've just made it harder to get a get a good pay deal or improve your health and safety by scrapping fair pay agreements. Mm. Um, we're making it harder um to you know to, to to try and be a worker in new zealand and that's the opposite of what we should be doing right now after having had so much insecurity during COVID, yeah. um and having had so much insecurity as a consequence of the the economic fallout from that um the current government's philosophy seems to be this this is all stuff we don't need to worry about we just need to make 
New Zealand somehow the 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 Jersey of the South Pacific, mm. as John Key wants it to be, a hyper deregulated state in which um, everyone will get a job. It's just you won't have any security about that job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the ninety day, uh, the reinstitution of that ninety day thing is that was just pure unadulterated ideology. Yep. It made it, it made no sense from a political standpoint, in my view. It made, from a labour market conditions standpoint, it made no sense whatsoever. And economically, as you say, even Treasury, yet another renowned bunch of socialists, mm. ca- called it out for being a, a complete waste of time. They needed to do it. It was an ideological play. It was quite revealing to that extent, wasn't it? It, it really was. And, and but it, you know, it's what it signals. And 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 to me. What doesn't worry me is actually what's in front of us, in front of government. We have a we have a hundred day plan. From my perspective, it's not great, um, but you know it's at least advertised. What concerns me is what's beyond that hundred day plan, and the unadvertised changes that this government may wish to make, mm-hmm. which will go further and further and further to pushing that liberalising, uh, 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 worker unfriendly agenda to help create exactly the kinds of profits that um, you know we've relied upon in the past, where we rely upon cheap tourism, we rely upon dairy, we rely upon unprocessed logs, leaving New Zealand to pay our way, rather than creating the kinds of modern uh, um, you know, um, uh, um, services-based, um, uh, export-oriented economy that we actually want to see. Um, that's the real challenge, is, what we're doing is just taking us back to where we were in 2017, as if every, as if all progress since 2017 needs to be deleted. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a, a warmed-over shock doctrine, you know, completely uncalled for by events, completely uncalled for by conditions or the state of the economy. It seems to be venting their ideological spleen, right? <laughs> Certainly, that the, and you can get that sense of um, a, a political party feeling as if um, it should have been in government in 2017. It lost the election without um, feeling like it lost mm. the election. And this is just them returning to being the, the natural masters of government and, and delivering what they would have done in 2017 and 2020. Yeah. Um, uh, um, what there doesn't appear to be anything of is a plan for the long term. You don't have a plan for the long term by making big cuts to public services. You don't have a plan for the long term by reducing um, the very few worker rights that we already have. You don't make a plan for the long term by abolishing entities to support Māori, Pacifica, other groups who have, who have suffered over the past 40 years of, of a deregulated market in New Zealand. You don't, need, you don't, you don't have a, a long-term plan by making it easier to rent rather than making it easier to build housing. Yeah. There isn't that sense of actually what a good New Zealand looks like, except what good was in 2017. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very astute analysis. Very pleased and excited to have aren't we, Craig? Uh, our, our first guest here on Behind the Cycle, none other than uh, Aisha Varel, Dr. Aisha Varel, who is Labour's 
current spokesperson on health and public services. Is that a correct way of describing your position? Health, public services and, and uh, Wellington issues. And Wellington issues. Oh, well, we'll avoid those um, <laughs> <laughs> strenuously. Uh, there's enough in the paper uh, without us adding to any of that. Um, first, to begin with, uh, I, my, my inclination is to call you Minister out of respect, but I, but I won't. For the former Minister, uh, Aisha, tell us a little bit about your background. How did uh, you end up in Parliament? What was your journey to Parliament? And uh, and tell us something about your life experience before you entered the public fray. Yeah, I think it'd be fair to say my um, journey to Parliament was a little bit accidental in, in many ways. Um, I grew up down in uh, Tiano in, the, um, in Fiordland. Um, Mum and Dad were both teachers at the school. Dad was the principal and Mum was my English teacher. A really small town, small school, just 200, 200 kids at our college. And I had a childhood, you know, with lots of outdoor adventures in the national park, lots of sport and, you know, pretty serious about, about school. And then went to um, a university at Otago and probably initially drifted into medical school. Um, but then when I got there, absolutely loved it. And um, uh, politics was, you know, always something in the, in the background in my home life. Mum and dad were both involved in uh, their union, um, very um, uh, interested and involved previously in pro progressive causes, you know, Springbok tour, Vietnam, that sort of, and, and having that sort of international consciousness, um, partially because mum's from overseas, um, from the Maldives Islands. Um, but, uh, um, and then at university, I got interested in progressive politics through students' associations. But at the same time, you know, always at least 40 hours of work a week at med school and, and things, it was a um, pretty, pretty busy time. Um, I, uh, after being student president for a year, just totally fell in love with medicine after having a year of, um, of a break and then, you know, worked really hard, got to their junior doctor at Wellington Hospital um, and uh, uh, spent most of my 20s, most of my 30s, just totally um, uh, committed to medical medical work, uh, passed my exams and then went overseas. And, um, and I finished my infectious diseases training in Singapore, which is just an amazing place to be an infectious diseases doctor. You're doing all of tropical medicine, but in a um, developed country hospital with laboratories where you can, you know, really diagnose everyone's problem and um, help with, uh, you know, access modern treatments. So quite a unique place in the world in that sense. Um, and then um, uh, decided that I wanted to uh, go into this niche specialty, which not many people knew about at the time, called epidemiology, back before it was cool. And I did a um, PhD in Indonesia on tuberculosis. Um, and one of the things about that is we were studying how tuberculosis is transmitted in the, this massive, sprawling Indonesian city called Bandung. And the way we did that was sending, would meet patients and send a nurse out to there uh, to meet the patient at home um, on, a, on a motorbike, weaving through the, through the um, uh, blocked up uh, congested traffic and then... Um, 
would survey all of the household members and check if they had caught TB and the factors that influenced uh, influenced that. And while it was very focused on tuberculosis and um, immunity and how things are transmitted, the method we were using was contact tracing, you know, going and finding a case and then um, seeing who, who's been exposed and who got it after afterwards. And so um, running that study was basically how I how I learned about operationalizing in quite chaotic circumstances, uh, contact tracing systems. So anyway, I thought, well, like everyone who writes a thesis, well, this isn't going to be any use whatsoever. I've, I've written it, I've got my, got my degree, came back home um, and uh, started work at Wellington Hospital as a, as a specialist um, and teaching some, some work, teaching medical students as well. And then the pandemic happened and all of a sudden people needed to know about contact tracing. And that experience of writing that contact tracing report um, made me, you know, it was obvious that at that time in 2020, the importance of um, uh, the pandemic to what was going on with the government at that stage. And that's what motivated me for me to stand for Labour at that point in, um, in the cycle. Uh, so it's not a typical political background. And certainly I wouldn't advise if you want to be a politician to spend as long in technical training as I did. <laughs> Uh, but but that's what happened, and um, in in the end, you know, I was really proud to be able to make a contribution in terms of in terms of COVID, and then to be increasingly more widely involved in our in our politics as Minister of Health and Minister of Research, Science, and Innovation, and um, now keen to get on with the business of getting stuck in as opposition spokesperson. Brilliant. Craig, I think that segues nicely to the. The question. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. So, um, I mean, you know, you, you had a, an, an astonishing um, sort of career, sort of, you know, coming to Parliament in the middle of a COVID epidemic, um, you know, and with your background. Um, I'm just really interested, sort of, in a very brief, and it's always very difficult to, you know, answer really difficult, big questions in a really brief sense, but sort of, what does the New Zealand health system get right and wrong? What are the big challenges facing the country in terms of health? And how do we sort of, you know, what have you learned as a, as a minister as a minister about the public health system that you'd want to see changed in New Zealand? Yeah, I'd talk all day about this, but mm. I guess if I was allowed to choose one thing that we get really well, having worked in Australia, Singapore, and then been close to the health system in Indonesia and um, other places as well, I guess I'd say we have, highly trained staff that are well-rounded. And by that, I mean good book knowledge, uh, good focus on um, listening and patient uh, patient rights um, and uh, pragmatic and practical in terms of applying that. You know, I've seen uh, lots of um, people around the world who just those fundamentals of how to do the right thing by the patient in a practical way aren't mm -hmm aren't as instilled as strongly in, um, as in our system. So I think that's a, a real strength, and it's easy to look past when we um, are always in the day-to-day -day of whatever pressures we're facing in the health system. Um, in terms of things that could be done, um, done better, I would say that the... Um, yeah... Um, the investment in our health system, when you take a very big um, picture look, uh, is 
excessively focused at the end of emergency um, and um, late intervention rather than early intervention. And so that's why, you know, I've been so keen to focus on things like uh, smoke-free, why we had so much um, uh, emphasis on cancer screening, particularly the improvements in cervical and bowel screening, um, why we've taken um, those sorts of more preventative approaches because unless we intervene early in things mm. for people, we'll always be um, stuck at the uh, costly and actually um, for the person affected, the heart, you know, that's that's not where they want to be. They want to be kept well going about their business in the in the community. Um, that doesn't mean we ever stop having um, uh, the sort of emergency uh, or cancer treatment services that of course we need and we want to develop. But it is, as a matter of balance, I think that um, there needs, there does need to be a greater emphasis on prevention, on community, and on primary care. And I guess in terms of, you know, there's always pressures on health investment. You can always spend twice as much money as you do on health, and you know, to some extent, it's a, it's a bit of a bottomless pit. Um, but where um, would you see those public health interventions being, you know? better focused what what are what are the things that you'd want to you'd want to get a hold of first and say this is where we need to make a big change yeah so um of course part of my old job was always being the person who when they heard that just reminded everyone that it's not a bottomless pit and of course we get a tremendous amount of value out of the money we spend in health in terms of keeping our uh, our workers in work Mm -hmm. and um uh you know um uh, keeping people people healthy Look, I think that, um, uh, of course, there are um, uh, the, the smoke-free work is one that um, is just a no-brainer in terms of its um, uh, addressing of other costs down the line in the health system. Mm-hmm. But if we're but going to the biggest picture, I think improving access to primary care and um, would be part of it. That's why one of the, you know, I was health minister for eight months, but one of the um, things that we got across the line in that time that I was so pleased about was free prescriptions because that is um, a a core part of primary care, that management of chronic conditions, things like diabetes, gout, blood pressure, that if you don't do it, you know, it's uh, strokes, heart attacks, it's the hospital, that uh, that sort of thing. Now, that isn't just a matter of medicines. It's also a matter of the accessibility of those services, how we um, uh, and the uh, suitability of those services for all communities. I, I think that was yes. Uh, sorry, Craig. Aisha, the, the, you, you twice mentioned the smoke-free um, mm. issue, and obviously that one of the first moves of this new government was to sort of, and I might get you just to describe for the audience what exactly they did, because I'm not sure that everyone understands precisely. I think there's a good understanding that they have clawed back or at least pulled back um, some of the smoke-free policies that were in place and were pretty much, I think, the subject of bipartisan consensus until that moment. So I want you to reflect on, on, on that and describe a little bit for us what exactly it is that they did. But also, I'm curious as to your perspective, both as a former minister, as a current politician, but also someone who, you know, recently practiced within the sector, do you think this is a death blow to Shane Retty's credibility as an incoming health minister? This seems 
to have severely hobbled him, in my estimation, simply because it's such an obvious, as you say, no-brainer to tackle uh, to tackle smoke-free. And do you think, if not that any of us are in the business of giving Shane Reddy advice, do you think the more advisable course of action might have been for him to say, well, you can do that deal with the devil if you want, but I'm not going to be your health minister. Do you think that would have been the better course of action for him? If you, you know, in terms of doing the right thing by healthcare above and beyond and far more important than party politics? The smoke-free legislation was um, part of uh, a new set of reforms we were about to bring in. And what the National Party has done is propose that they're going to repeal those, um, uh, that bill and stop the changes from going ahead. Those changes were three things that are going to make it um, illegal from anyone born after 2009 to be able to uh, purchase tobacco. That's... Um, and that there'd be penalties for selling uh, to them in the future. So that's a, that would create a smoke-free generation that would uh, um, be free of all of the harms of tobacco that current generations have faced. The second thing would have been to reduce the number of retail outlets down to 600. It's probably 10 times that at the, at the moment. Um, and then the third thing would have been to take the nicotine out of tobacco. And that's really important. It's really effective in trials that have uh, clinical trials at helping people stop smoking. And that will be all of those together, we think, would have got us to achieving the smoke free goal of having uh, 5% of New Zealanders, um, or less than 5% of people, uh, smoke. Currently, we're at about 8%, and, um, uh, and with marked inequalities for Māori and Pacific people there. Look, I think I was as shocked as everyone else when um, the coalition government announced that they would make these uh, changes. And like you, I had thought that that was something of a bipartisan uh, consensus and that a sensible uh, doctor who's just started as health, health minister wouldn't, wouldn't want to uh, touch those changes proposed by uh, New Zealand First and act with a barge pole. Uh, I would have resigned um, if that was the... Um, the deal, uh, and I've said I've said that to um, other media as as well. It seems to me to put you in an impossible position as health minister. A couple of reasons why. One is because every man on the street knows that this is a stupid thing to do, and you see that in the polling we've we've done on this. So when I am talking to people who are totally unconnected with politics, I have no idea why they've done that. And you'll see that in the cartoons that are being in the papers up and down the country. There's some folk in um, the Hawke's Bay putting a play on about, <laughs> about this uh, issue. It sort of captured the imagination in the, of, of the public as a ridiculous thing in the coalition agreement really early on. And the sector is furious, right? Of course, they want to give their new minister the benefit of the doubt, but they feel like they've really been let down on this this one, especially after the government came in campaigning that they're going to do stuff about the pressures that the health system is facing and calling it a crisis. I think the challenge for Dr. Retty, I think this will follow him around forever, and I think the challenge for him is to show that he can win arguments in Cabinet. That's his, his challenge. He's clearly lost one um, here, and national health ministers don't have a great track record with being able to stand up 
were big issues for the health system, like funding. And so I think what the health sector uh, needs beyond this issue is to see, see him actually being able to sustain or grow health, health funding, um, not just tokenistic mm. um, initiatives about little uh, services here and there. He will need to be able to show he can win the big arguments in order to live this down. Do you think he lost on uh, the prescription charges too? I, I think um, if you just go over the um, way that the National Party have re reacted to that issue over time, um, he is much more involved in their position on that because he has wanted to fund his cancer initiative out of the money from scrapping that and clearly the desire to specify, you know, his, he has a policy of specifying a certain number of cancer treatments that they want to fund, which um, rather than um, allowing Pharmac to make that, that decision, or funding Pharmac to make that decision. Uh, and I think he was pretty attached to that initiative, and therefore um, that's pro he's probably decided to, to fund, to, the, um, to scrap the copay initiative. Can I ask you about another area which has been, you know, an area of big, uh, of a certain degree of controversy in the health service, which is about what do you believe are the likely implications of the coalition government's disestablishment of the Māori Health Authority? Um, you know, we've already talked about smoking disproportionately impacting um, Māori communities. Is there anything else, um, you know, with the loss of the Māori Health Authority that um, Māori communities are going to face um, or, or, or the new challenges as a consequence of that loss? I think it's a hugely um, negative and backwards step. And I think having, um, and I know Dr. Ritti has made statements about how he will replace it with something equivalent but doesn't believe in a big centralised bureaucracy. But I, I think that's um, probably a mischaracterisation of what the Māori Health Authority is. Māori Health Authority is one of the most grassroots orientated organisations I think I've ever I've ever met. It's very in touch with its community, and I know after the cyclone on the um, east coast, they were uh, in there working with iwi and individual marae on on day one after the um, after the event. The um, the the real thing that gets lost if the Māori Health Authority goes is that strong institutional voice with the uh, right to speak directly to the minister mm. on issues relating to Māori health. And the Māori Health Authority did. They gave me direct advice that disagreed with the Ministry of Health on the Therapeutic Products Bill, for instance. And I think um, that that's, um, that's the main thing. Now, Dr. Riti has um, sort of made some statements about an alternative structure. We'll have to see the details of that to know what that means. I know there'll be a lot of scrutiny of how much funding goes to Māori Health in the, in the new arrangements. But I think going back to the approach where the main commitment to Māori Health was funding to um, individual providers to run what are really good and often innovative programmes, what that leaves out is that institutional voice and that working on the big picture issues that are holding Māori health back, whether that's, you know, how our um, screening or maternity programs are run. There's a lot of 
programmatic stuff that can't be done bit by bit around the country that needs um, that needs centralised leadership. And I think that's that's the sad thing um, that until we do something different from what we've been doing, we'll continue to see the um, uh, unacceptable statistics in terms of Māori Māori health outcomes. Turning to COVID. Um, <laughs> And given your both your expertise, as you described it, uh, as a as an epidemiologist, but also your close up and personal role during the pandemic itself, how do you make sense, I guess, of the delta that exists between perceptions of New Zealand's COVID response by global public health experts? And I, I'll leave this the economic uh, part of this to Craig, but. But I suspect even there, uh, which rates New Ze- ranks New Zealand pretty high, um, and certainly if you look at mortality figures, if you look at vaccination rates, whatever metric you like, it was a pretty triumphant kind of result, all things considered, uh, and notwithstanding that a pandemic is a horrible time for everyone. What makes sense of the delta between that and and the fact that I think by the end, at least in the lead up to the by the time the election came around last year. It had become a it had become a a weight on labour. It was no longer a positive, but indeed a negative. What what's going on? What was going on? What's going on there in your in your mind? Yeah, so the passage of time. And remember, we did have an emphatic victory in twenty twenty off the back of the original elimination of of COVID. So what's the difference between the twenty twenty result and the twenty twenty three result? And I think um, essentially uh, the accumulated um, pressures of the response um, led to a lot of hardship for people and um, that's uh, not to say um, that it wasn't a very good and in fact in some cases the best response in the in the world it was still bloody hard to pull off and that um, that hardship is in yep we talk about it in the health system but it's actually everywhere it's everywhere in every small business that had to reconfigure um, their arrangements for the different level responses. Um, everyone who was switching between work from home and uh, not um, uh, all of the businesses who would have had different regulatory requirements because of um, uh, the borders, the internal borders that were set up. Uh, and then, you know, businesses that had um, workforce shortages in, in 21 and 2022. 20, uh, so across um, our community life uh, um, and our economy, there were a huge series of impacts, lots of changes, and that put a huge amount of people um, uh, in, under pressure and they experienced hardship. So I think the gloss wore, wore off eventually. It was really tough going. People were fatigued and um, and frustrated. I, I, I don't think the, the fact that we did better than many other countries really washed with voters and perhaps that's not fair, but I think that is the reality. Of course, I wouldn't say the entire reason for the election defeat was COVID. There was, um, you know, inflation and the cost of living was a was a big part of it as well. Yeah, although that was COVID uh, impacted too, Craig. Right? I mean, yes. yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the one thing I'd be really interested in, Aisha, is the extent to which um, you believe, um, you know, the active disinformation campaigns that we saw during COVID. Um, and in the lead up um, to, you know, uh, to 
just after the 2020 election, um, really played any part in that loss and the sense that people were actually being told things that just weren't true um, about COVID and, and its consequences. Um, yeah, hard to say in terms of the election. I mean, there's certainly a, um, a small core of voters who were very organised. You know, I went to forums where half the audience were NZ loyal, you know, people who for whom vaccine mandates were their, were their main issue. Um, but, it's, yeah, I, I just couldn't say if that's yeah, 2% of the electorate or 5% or, or what. Um, but it has had a huge impact on other things as well. Like uh, you look at our vaccination statistics for kids, that it, you know that misinformation was having a a huge impact. And then I think um, the other thing is um, uh, that it plays out across some of this is international stuff. The anti-vax stuff is there is a global a, a global sort of trade and anti. Vax um, uh, and global networks of anti-vax um, misinformation uh, sharing, um, but there are other themes as well that um, uh, I guess the highway's been, been been built and they're riding along on it. So things like the anti-trans stuff, the um, uh, uh, gun um, um, uh, focus on gun rights from the United States. So lots of sort of um, overseas political concerns um, are come coming in on um, using those those networks. Uh, I think the other um, thing, though, is that um, some of us all being at home, spending a lot of time on the on the internet, impacted other issues as well. Mm. Probably three waters as yeah. well. I think. Um, so, if I could ask you about the future and sort of where where the Labour Party is heading to now. Um, what are the big issues that, that you want to tackle um, in your portfolios and elsewhere? And what do you think New Zealanders should be looking out for from Labour? Um, now we're in a different place and then we've got an opposition and a, and a chance to reposition the party on certain things. Yeah, big question. So um, we've, we've got a walk and chew gum at the same time yeah. and that, um, you know, in my case has involved um, uh, jumping quickly into action on um, addressing things like smoke-free and the other really retrograde backward steps this government has already thrown up, you know, um, in the climate area, uh, in our local infrastructure and workers' rights. So we've got to do all of that, holding the government to account that an opposition has to do while developing a, a positive agenda for the, for the future. Uh, this isn't um, a uh, um, the last national government. This coalition is wholly different, and so that throws to um, uh, I think um, means that there are other areas that we need to think about a bit more. We are always, you know, Labour are governments of long term uh, addressing long term issues. Sometimes, perhaps to our detriment, focusing on the long term on the long-term issues, but we have to be that voice for what strong public services are, whether that's health or education or others, um, what the infrastructure and nation-building investments need to be over the long-term. Of course, we need to um, continue to um, perhaps explain better what we did in climate change in government uh, and um, and continue to, to push to make sure that we have a... Uh, 
climate platform or policies that will um, not only see us meet our targets, but make sure that our economy and our workers make that transition to that economy in a way uh, that is sustainable for them too. Yeah, and ultimately lifts prosperity, you know, provides opportunities for, for new and future growth as well, right? That built on the yeah. rather than a rather than a fossil fuel. That, that's right. And that is one of the really um, cool things about being a research science and innovation minister. I went to um, Singapore um, and, and uh, while New Zealand Trade and Enterprise took a, and Callaghan took a, a clean energy mission there. There are small firms in New Zealand doing amazing work that could be not only seeing us make, a, uh, make the climate a transition to a high-wage, low-emissions economy, but also using our tech to be part of that, that change and us making, um, you know, being able to export that, that technology to other countries. There's a lot of firms um, that spun out of GNS that is making, uh, it's called Bespeckle, uh, that's making um, catalysts for producing green hydrogen uh, with less electricity inputs and fewer rare earth metals than anyone else can in the in the world. So we have the opportunity to be at the forefront of those changes mm. um, and also to make sure that our workers have opportunities in those industries as, as well. So I think that's, um, you know, that is the positive vision that we have to be able to talk about in terms of, of climate change. And it's one where I think neither parties on our left or our right are really um uh, inclined to pick that up, and I think that's where we need to show leadership. I could not agree with you more on that very point, Aisha. Uh, I think that's spot on. And, and so, do you see that as being a big so that research and development, innovation, creating a different, a new kind of economy, being a big part of the the Labour's conversation in twenty twenty six or earlier? Um, uh, um, you know about what what's the what's the new thing? What's the new vision that that people are going to see from the Labour Party? Yeah, that, that's that's right. I, I think that's really um, important, and I think that uh, conversation about um, science and technology was one that we never really got to conclude in office. Uh, Megan and then I had the um, Tata Paitani science reforms that were the the start to to that. So I do hope we're able to um, really push that forward as part of our wider economic. Um, platform. But I guess if I reflect on, you know, what everyone says about the adjourned years and, and that, oh my gosh, there was a um, pandemic, a um, volcanic eruption, a, a, um, a um, terrorist, attack. You know, terrorist attack, yeah, thank you, then these um, these types of challenges and threats are actually the the um, probably the reality of of our future and being able to um, bring a coherent platform on climate change to actually yeah. start bending the curve away from that is just absolutely um, important. And unless we have a sort of sensible and thought out approach to um, uh, the technology that will get us there and also that will diversify us beyond um, relying on a single industry as our primary way of earning exports, we will just be vulnerable to more and more shocks going going forward. So I think that's a really important thing. And I think making that link that is not, you know, apparent perhaps on the surface between um, science and technology policy and 
why that is important for secure jobs for our workers is a really important part of the work that Labor needs to do. Great. Well, I, I, uh, we'll conclude here. You've been very generous with your time, Aisha, and thank you for being our first guest. Please put in a kind word uh, with, with your colleagues because we'd like to speak to many of them uh, going forward. I use the phrase going forward. I think I need to put 50 cents in a, in a tin somewhere um, because going forward is the language of the, the Luxon era. We need to avoid it with, at all costs. But, but Aisha, I'm for one absolutely delighted to see that you have taken the defeat on board, but you're pivoting and focusing on this period in opposition because it need not be, and I'll repeat this endlessly as this podcast goes ahead, this, as much as you say once in a century events are happening every year similarly the old paradigm of nine years out six years in that's irrelevant let's let's gear yeah. up three years from now let's let's take a credible story to the public and 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 earn the right again to take those treasury benches with you hopefully and i, I would say with all confidence in a in a, in a senior role uh, so thank you for your time and all the best thanks for having me it's been fun and- well it, it's funny I, I have the mini budget here on my desk in front of me um and uh, and so I, I can give it to you not i too, mean not, I too hard, not too hard to lift uh, I was going to say, you know, it's not, it's, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's nine pages of press release. Yeah. Um, and I know when I was first handed this document and this, this little folder, I thought, well, yeah, I thought, I thought, oh, the, the, the mini budget must have fallen out. Can I get another one, please? <laughs> um, uh, it hasn't that there are, there are simply, um, some pages that say we're going to do some things. There are some pages that say, there's one that says the fiscal job. Uh, fiscal repair job is underway, but then doesn't actually tell us how it's going to do that or what repair job was necessary. Um, it's it's a it's it's a, it's it's beyond a um, Nicola, um, the minister of finance. I talked about it being a a, um, a a mini 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 budget. Um, I'd go further and I'd say it was more of a, a microscopic budget. <laughs> it doesn't actually deserve the term budget. Um, and allied to that, unfortunately, was the fact that because it came so late in the piece, all of the Treasury's numbers that come alongside that in the half-year update are out of date because they don't include any of the changes proposed by the uh, the current government. So we don't have a strong sense of actually what the nation's finances look like or are likely to look like. We don't have a strong sense of what the, uh, the the sort of the key economic motivators of of, of this government are um, it was it was a, it was very much a, a, a political event rather than an economic um, event. Um, much of the cuts identified were actually the cuts from the the previous government, and many of the people in the in the lockup were left wanting more. It, 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 it was theatre. Um, and it was theatre designed to, to try and emphasise the message before people went away for Christmas, before they took their summer breaks, um, that uh, um, the previous government had been irresponsible, that um, you know there were now adults in the room who were now going to deal with this irresponsibility. The challenge is, is that they said those words, but then didn't demonstrate it, yeah. didn't then show what that then meant, didn't then show how their programme was going to be different. Instead, as I say, we ended up with this folder 
with nine pages of press release and a treasury apologizing because its numbers were out of date. What a more, um, uh, how do I put this? What a more thoughtful um, government might have done has said, listen, it took a really long time to negotiate this coalition deal. We'll do the half-year economic and fiscal update where we're required to by law, but we'll just put that out. Yeah. And at the end of January, at the beginning of November, we'll actually do a proper update which will demonstrate how we're going to do things and we'll work very hard over the break period to put that together and to show you coherently how that's going to work. Instead, there was just desperation for um, what my media friends call a moment will tell. Um, and if inflation falls rapidly this year and people feel more comfortable, the this government will reap a reward sure. um, for something that it has it's had no control over that's politics that's life um but um you know um absent of that um there wasn't anything in the documents at the budget that gave anyone a real sense of actually how they were going to deliver on the cost of living which was their election um uh, pitch how they're going to make life easier for people in on average moderate incomes yeah um how they're going to make life easier for people who rent how they're going to make life easier to get a job. What we saw was a commitment to deliver tax cuts that don't that don't don't currently add up, and a commitment to cut large bits of public service, but no clarity as to what that was. And so, no, and and, and that's that, that's the real challenge ahead of ahead of them is doing that in a way um, that allows um, the country to see, you know, what you know what the economic philosophy of of, of this government is absent. Just that short run, um, you know, uh, um, agony of you've spent too much money, or we don't care, or we don't like what the previous government was yeah. doing. That's not an economic philosophy. That's just a talking point. Yeah. Um, quite how those 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 coalition documents become real, and how they get embedded, and the extent to which those political parties are really able to make trade offs between each other, in all because the actual the the economics of uh, and, and the fiscal reality that's in front of us, doesn't lend itself to deliver the program that they've put inside that, that document. Yeah. And, and it's being nimble in that space. Next time we talk, Craig, and I think we're, we're about right to wind up for what I think has been a tr- terrific episode. Thank you very much for your role in that. Uh, next time, let's dig right into that coalition agreement. All right. Thank you very much, Craig, and thank you all of you for listening, and I hope you come back next week where I'll have a new co-host whose name I'm withholding in order to create tension.